One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, and you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. On today's show, the chips are down. What does America's ban on Huawei mean for the world's second biggest maker of smartphones? Any new Huawei phones that turn up on the market will not be able to use uh, the most modern version of Android at all. What can private companies do to promote more and freer trade? If we were able to implement all of the reforms associated with it, it would add a trillion dollars to the global economy. And how racial bias in America's justice system closes doors in schools, at work and beyond. They're more inclined to see multiple infractions from a black child as being indicative of that child being a troublemaker. But first... The Trump administration's ban on Huawei, a Chinese telecoms giant, is barely a week old. But the shockwaves are already being felt. Existing supplier contracts are protected for the next three months. But the ban has the effect of barring American companies like Google, Qualcomm and Intel from supplying the world's second biggest smartphone maker with new hardware, software or licenses. Future Huawei devices will not include services such as YouTube or Google Maps. Our technology correspondents, Tim Cross, here in the studio with me in London, and Hal Hodson on the line from Hong Kong, are watching all this closely. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Simon. Hi there, Simon. Tim, can I start with you? Give us a sense of how significant this is. What does it mean for Huawei users now? For Huawei users at the moment, it doesn't mean too much. So Huawei have said uh, your existing phones will continue to work uh, as before. So I don't think you need to worry too much about that. Um, There's still a question about whether updates to uh, Android itself, so the sort of fundamental updates to new versions of the operating system, it's unclear whether those will be rolled out or not. It's looking like they won't, but that's a sort of problem for the medium term. I think at the moment you don't need to worry. The bigger question is what happens in future. Any new Huawei phones that turn up on the market will not be able to use uh, the most modern version of Android at all. And how how has Huawei reacted to all this, if at all? And what more might we expect from them? Well, even before the news came out that Google had stopped supplying software to Huawei for its phones, in an extremely unusual move, or the one that's becoming more normal, Huawei's boss, uh, Ren Zhengfei, held a press conference in Shenzhen, uh, mostly for Japanese journalists, for whatever reason, where he, he claimed that Huawei would be fine, even if all of its US suppliers pulled out, which a lot of them now have. There's definitely a bit of bluster there, but he's essentially saying things are going to slow down for us a little bit. He said that maybe revenues would grow 20% slower than they had last year, not that they would decrease, but just the rate of growth would slow, and basically suggested that Huawei is not going to crack under pressure like its domestic competitor ZTE did last year. They made the point that, you know, they're a big contributor to the open source ecosystem that is Android, 
and that's that's Google's mobile operating system. I think it's kind of an await and see moment at this point because even though Google and a bunch of other suppliers have stopped supplying in order to comply with the US law, it seems unlikely in the sort of going forward that those those bans are going to stay in place permanently and forever, just because that would be so seismic. So you're thinking this will be just a temporary phenomenon? What seems likely to me, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, Tim, is that this is probably just going to be another chip in the sort of great tech trade war between the US and China, rather than making these bans permanent and doing sort of lasting damage, not just to Huawei and China, but to the probably to the U.S. economy, to the economies of its allies, and to the supply chain of its allies, and also forcing China to react in a potentially bad way to this, I think it's much more likely that this withholding of technology just becomes another bargaining chip in the ongoing trade war. Is that how you see it, Tim? Because the obvious precedent, I suppose, is what happened to ZTE, another Chinese telecoms giant banned by the U.S., and then rehabilitated after a personal plea from Xi Jinping to Donald Trump. That's right. And that's the parallel everyone's drawing. And I think just as a bit of context, we should say we talk about Chinese companies and and American companies. The reality is that the supply chains of these tech firms are very, very tangled. And, you know, companies like ZTE and Huawei depend crucially on certain products from the West. So one of the big questions is how many other American firms will will uh, or are already following Google and, and, and refusing to ship products to Huawei. I think the difference with this and the ZTE case is that for ZTE, there was a sort of obvious course of action that ZTE could take. And they were, um, they had this export ban slapped on them because they had been convicted of trying to uh, dodge American sanctions and then had lied about compliance with their punishment. So ZTE were in the position where, you know, they could sort of fold and say, okay, we'll we'll do what the Department of Justice wants. Huawei's in a slightly different position. Their, their problem fundamentally is that they're Chinese and the Americans just simply don't trust technology coming out of China. It's hard to see what they can do about that. At the same time, I think Hal's right. You know, if this if this ban were to persist, it would cause real problems. Now, Huawei will tell you that you know they've been worried about this for a while. They've been stockpiling parts, but those won't last forever. And if the ban goes on and on and on, then you could potentially see pretty serious damage being caused to them. And and you know, Huawei's a big company. It's got revenues you know roughly the same as as Microsoft's. And you can imagine the sort of political fallout if this were reversed and, and the Chinese decided to try and strangle Microsoft. So it would be a big sort of escalation on the American side if if they were to keep this up. We're into the realm of sort of quite intense hypotheticals here, but one sort of seemingly obvious but extreme thing it could do is just make it illegal to sell Apple phones. That would be incredibly damaging for Apple because it gets 20% of its revenues from the Chinese market. The other thing that China could do that perhaps is slightly more realistic is it could just start disrupting the supply chains of American technology companies that exist within China. Um, Even just taking tighter control of the Foxconn factories, which, you know, make the huge majority of the devices that come out of the mainland and get sold in America, even when those companies are not Chinese companies, but American companies. And so, you know, China had some control as well in this game. And I think what we probably will see is China being a bit more patient than America has been. We are at a point where America is the one making the first move in, in, in this particular bit of the struggle. And I suppose a question for both of you really is how far might this go? Are we seeing a bifurcation between the development of mobile technologies in the West and in China that is likely to to continue and end up with two 
completely separate ecosystems. Jim? I think we could. I mean, it's not just mobile technologies either. It's sort of computing and, and, and IT of all sorts. And, you know, China already has plans domestically to try and increase its self-reliance. And of course, Huawei has said it, it, it's been stockpiling components, you know, in anticipation of a move like this. And I think even if this is just, you know, another tactic in the trade war and six months down the line, it's all blown over. You would have to think if you're China or Huawei or any Chinese tech firm, you've got to look at your American suppliers with a bit more, you know, doubt than you than you had before. So I think whatever happens with this, it will sort of reinforce the the determination in China to try and disentangle from from the American supply chain as much as they can. It'll be hard, but I think it'll it'll you know make them even more keen to try and do it as much as they can. And how how feasible do you think it is for China to try and disentangle itself from US supply chains? I think it's feasible, but only on a longer time scale than we're tending to think about the sort of US-China trade war. Um, it's going to take a long time. Huawei has said that it is trying to develop its own version of a mobile phone operating system so that it isn't dependent on the proprietary bits of code that Google puts in, like maps and um, email software. Um, but, but that's just very difficult. These are very complex systems. And I, I, just to pick up on one of the things that Tim was saying, I think the U.S. has actually deployed a really powerful weapon in messing with Huawei's supply chain here. Like, you know, this will do real damage to Huawei as a company, even if everything gets put back in a few weeks' time. Just because when the components stop flowing through your logistics chain, it costs huge amounts of money. You know, these are finely tuned machines that make other machines, you know. But I think it's going to incentivize Huawei to become even more independent, even faster than it was already trying to. And so the next time that America tries to pull a trick like this, it's going to hurt a little bit less. It's kind of a, a game of diminishing returns, as far as I can see. Hal, thank you for staying up late for us in Hong Kong. Of course. And Tim, thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us in London. Thanks, Simon. And you can follow our analysis of this story as it unfolds by subscribing to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for £12 or $12. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Our next guest has first-hand experience at the coalface of international trade. Michael Froman was America's trade representative until 2017. He's now vice chairman of MasterCard, responsible for its strategic growth. I asked him how his past and present roles relate to each other. Are private companies dependent on this increasingly fractious political world? Or is there something they themselves can do to promote the free international trade that helps them prosper? I actually think that as governments become more uh, polarized and paralyzed, there's an increasingly important role for the private sector to play uh, in international trade and facilitating international trade. Uh, we are uh, working to make it easier for small, medium-sized businesses to join global supply chains. It's remarkable how much of international trade is paper-based, manual-based, cash and check based. We've introduced a, a product called Track where it makes it uh, much quicker and easier for an SME to join a global supply chain, to track and, and to uh, reconcile 
bills and payments and receivables and payables to manage risk. It alerts you when there's been a negative credit event or a negative press event around a participant in your supply chain. So you're more willing to have uh, those kinds of uh, small, medium-sized businesses in your supply chain. There was a trade facilitation agreement at the WTO. Uh, it was said at the time that if we were able to implement all of the reforms associated with it, it would add a trillion dollars to the global economy. This is a private sector contribution towards making that trillion dollars achievable. Your title, I think, is President for Strategic Growth. Where is the strategic growth for a firm like MasterCard? Is it in increasing market share in the sort of known business universe, or is it in expanding that universe downwards, if you like, to, to, the, to the poor and those without access to your services at the moment? We really think about it in terms of, of growing our core business, and some of that is to do with market share, but also just growing the, the, the pie of folks who are participating, diversifying our business by bringing more people and more sectors into the digital economy. And that really goes to the point of financial inclusion, our commitment to bring 500 million more individuals and 40 million more micro-merchants into the financial system, and then building entirely new businesses, some of which may have very little to do with payments, but really go to how does a trusted network participate and contribute into, to the business environment. So in what form does that take then, that you're bringing in these micro-merchants and, and the financially excluded? If it's not through what many of my generation associate with MasterCard, a plastic card, how is it? It's, it's on their phones. It can be. It, it can be a card. It can be on their phones. Uh, I actually have a ring that is effectively a, a, a MasterCard. You can walk into the London tube and get on by passing your hand over the reader. So the form of it, it doesn't really matter. It can be everything from bringing in people who work in a factory who are currently being paid in cash to now being paid in payroll, um, digitizing all the various parts of, of their life, from paying their bills to being able to sell their products uh, online. In Africa, for example, we're working with the Global Alliance on Vaccine Innovation to begin to create vaccination records for families. And so you go in, you'll get a card with a chip, then that chip and with its encryption can keep your child's vaccination record. You can get an SMS message when you're late for a vaccine. And then later in life, when you're sending that kid to, to school, we have a, a product that we've developed that helps the family manage the payment of their school fees. And so the school knows who's in school, make sure that they're graduating. Uh, or if you're a micro-merchant, you have a tiny store, uh, we are digitizing the relationship between micro-merchants and their consumer products providers like, like Unilever with a local bank in the middle of it so that as a micro-merchant, you can get credit for the first time. And so in all these areas, this is using the fact that we're in a digital economy to bring more people in, put them on the pathway towards greater financial security. And all this is part of MasterCard's commercial strategy, if you like, because I know MasterCard also has a foundation which engages in charitable work. I assume you also engage in CSR activities, corporate social responsibility activities. But your responsibility is for doing this and making the firm money out of it. I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, we, we do philanthropy, we do corporate social responsibility, both of which are incredibly important. But to, to, to me, the ultimate goal is demonstrating that we can have commercially sustainable social impact, that we can use our products, our technology, our understanding of ecosystems, our expertise to have social impact while at the same time 
have those businesses stand on their own two feet. That's the only scalable way to have social impact. You know, I, my time in government and I, when I was working on development policy, there isn't enough foreign assistance in the world. There isn't enough philanthropy in the world to achieve the, the sustainable development goals, to solve the challenges that we have if we can't mobilize the ingenuity, the resources, the momentum of the private sector. And the private sector will only do these kinds of activities at scale if they can do so on a commercially sustainable basis. So that's what we're very much focused on. Michael Furman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And finally, Jennifer Eberhardt is a professor of psychology at Stanford University. But when she was a graduate student at Harvard, something happened that changed the direction of her life. Driving through Boston, she and a friend were pulled over by the police. Their license plate had recently expired. But when she was reluctant to let their car be towed, the situation escalated. So he, he yanked me out of the car and uh, lifted my arms up high behind my back and uh, body slammed me hard on the roof of the car. And uh, it knocked the wind out of me, and I, I just couldn't speak or breathe or anything. And um, long story short, he you know, ends, ends up handcuffing uh, the both of us and uh, taking us to a police precinct and handcuffing us to a wall. She was charged with assaulting her arresting police officer. I should add that Dr. Eberhardt stands about five foot three, is slightly built, and she's black. After the judge threw the case out of court, she resolved to dedicate her research to unpacking the science behind racial bias. Her new book is called Biased, the New Science of Race and Inequality. Our Bartleby columnist, Philip Coggan, began by asking her about a particular study in America that asked participants to play the part of a policeman armed with a gun. They created a computer simulation where uh, study participants would uh, sit in front of a computer screen and then uh, they would see images. Each image would show a person who was either holding a gun or holding a cell phone, and either that person was black or white. And they had to make the decision to uh, shoot as quickly as possible or to not shoot as quickly as possible. And the finding was that for African Americans who were holding guns, they made the decision to shoot. Uh, faster than uh, white Americans who were holding guns. So they found a race effect in terms of the reaction time, but also in terms of the error rate. So they were more likely to mistakenly shoot a black person with no gun than they were to mistakenly shoot a white person with no gun. And it's not just about crime either. This is this bias surrounds African-Americans throughout life. So in, in the education system, when you do tests on teachers, they are more likely to take a dim view of African-Americans after a similar number of infractions That's right. that white students had done. So we wanted to do a controlled study on this because there were lots of uh, studies showing a correlation between uh, race and uh, disciplinary decisions. But then you don't know what's that, what that's being driven by. You know, uh, So some people would say, well, that's an, you know, a, a real indication of bias on the, on the teacher's part. Uh, but it could also be um, that there's a difference in, in misbehavior you know, across race lines. And so we wanted to run a controlled study where we give people the identical situation, the identical uh, infractions, and just change the race of the student that they had to consider, and found uh, that the teachers found the uh, black student's misbehavior was more problematic. They felt like it was hindering um, uh, the teacher's ability to teach uh, more, and they wanted to discipline uh, that black child more than the white child. 
the economic opportunities of African-Americans must be affected by, by this combination of bias in the education system, in the criminal justice system. You also find studies at, when people are applying for jobs that mm-hmm. those who are African-American struggle even to get an interview. I found the one fascinating statistic that there that whites with criminal convictions oh, right. were as likely to get an interview as African-Americans with no convictions at all. Right. You can think about bias in the criminal justice system as being just a part of that system, but it can spill over into all of these other systems and affect the life outcomes of people. How does that affect uh, who we see as suspicious in our neighborhoods? You know, how does that affect um, you know, the value of our homes when we're trying to, you know, a black family is trying to sell a home versus a white family? You know, how does it uh, it affect how we even imagine the space, you know, that, that black families have lived in? I mean, they're imagining those neighborhoods as uh, being more crime-ridden and, and, and so forth. So, you know, part of why we see this difference in how teachers are disciplining black versus white children is because they're more inclined to see multiple infractions uh, from a black child as being indicative of that child being a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, and that troublemaker... So there are these racial narratives, right, that exist that can follow us through all these different contexts and influence our life outcomes. I'm just interested, obviously, much of this research is based in the U.S. When you come to Europe, when you come to Britain, do you think things are the same, better, worse? A lot of people will say to me, oh, it's much worse in the U.S., and they'll point to the police shootings and, you know, all of these ways in which race, you know, makes a difference, you know, and can really uh, limit opportunity for African Americans. But then when I talk to, um, you know, the, the people here who are you know, non-white, I, I get a different, <laughs> I get a different image of, of what's happening. I mean, they think that bias is is, is an issue here, um, you know, like it's an issue elsewhere, especially in the U.S. So, what can be done about this? Is it just um, confronting our inner biases as as whites, or does something does the laws need to be changed to try and address these biases, which to many people may be entirely unconscious? First of all, it's not the case that only whites have bias. Um, so in, in many of the studies that we've conducted, for example, we show that, you know, people of color, you know, have these biases too. Um, you know, people who uh, do work on gender bias show that women, you know, also show this kind of gender bias. So it's not something that is just one group, uh, you know, has it and the other group is targeted. Um, it's something that we're all vulnerable to. And um, in fact, I, I should tell you, um, the officer who arrested at me in Boston was African-American. Wow. I think the distinction here between um, sort of this unconscious bias and the bias that people, you know, typically talk about is this unconscious bias is basically defined as your beliefs and your feelings about uh, social groups that can influence your behavior or influence your decision making, even when you're not aware of it. So you don't have to be aware of it. You don't have to be motivated to act against, you know, another person. This can happen despite your motivations and despite your intentions. Professor. Eberhardt, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's Money Talks. Thanks for listening. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist.
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 